I'm Garrett McQueen. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy, true and real stories from the fringes of classical music, coming right out of a little frustration, right out of the gate, because sometimes technology doesn't exactly do what you need it to do, does it? Sometimes, yeah, most, most of, of the, the time. time. But anyway, some, some folks that uh, do exactly... Uh, what they should, at least <laughs> most of the time, some of the time, are all of the arts administrators of the world. And we're actually going to, um, uh, well, I, I talk with a, talked with an arts administrator named Quanis Floyd, um, and that is today's uh, interview portion of Triloquy. Do, do you know much about the field of arts administration? They do everything important, really. <laughs> they would they would certainly like for you to say that. Well, and you know they're doing all the behind the scenes stuff. They're doing uh, contract negotiations. They're producing. They're doing uh, getting your your volunteers organized, setting up and, the chairs and the stands at the know, at the rehearsals. You know, doing a, a bit of it all, but very important work. Yeah, they make it happen. Yeah, and, and you know another thing that the arts administrators do um, is is. Uh, take care of the social media for, you know, whatever orchestras and whatever. That's a new thing, right? That's like a, a, well, a more a, recent thing. Well, a, a lot of these institutions are trying to uh, jump in and be, uh, you know, be as equitable as they can and be as far-reaching as they can. Mm-hmm. And, and social media is certainly a, a way to do that. And, um, Scott, I had a little run-in. <laughs> <laughs> do tell. So... I spend a lot of time on Twitter because I think it's important, to, especially when I'm on the air overnight, because that's when I'm, you know, forward promoting. I'm like, hey, if, if y'all want to hear this, you know, just click this link or, or whatever. I hadn't thought about and, promoting that way. It's yeah. Good. And that's and that's how I, um, you know, that's how I get a lot of followers and get a lot of listeners and feedback and all that stuff. Nice. Um, so anyway, I spent a lot of time on Twitter and I noticed um, that the London Philharmonic had uh, tweeted out this photo, and a lot of people are doing it. So it's a picture of uh, a lunchroom, and at different <laughs> tables are, for, in this case, were different composers. And they asked the question, well, what lunch table are you sitting at? Who are you sitting with? And um, none of the composers that they had put in the lunchroom um, were... I almost want to say there were no. Well, there were a couple Americans, but there certainly were no composers of color. And didn't Corelli get in there twice? Wasn't yeah, Corelli he... getting there. He's at two different lunch tables, mm. and um, so I, I tweeted them back. I said, "Oh, I guess the black composers had to sit. Uh, they had to eat outside, huh?" Damn. And boy, that caught fire. I mean, I, I think as as I speak now, I'm up to like sixty thousand or seventy thousand engagements. What? <laughs> it, it it got big. So. Um, I get a dozen likes on Facebook, and I'm like, ooh, <laughs> man, I'm blowing up. Well, uh, you know, obviously the London Philharmonic saw that, and um, and they, you know, the next day they tweeted out this long extended feature uh, about Florence Price to kind of, you know, sort of make up for it, which, you know— the, the the arts administrators and that and the social media position for that orchestra should be more aware of of, of black classical music, especially these days. Um, sure. But, but you know they, they they responded in a in a really great way, and I appreciated that. Now um, the same night, I noticed that Scott, our hometown orchestra. They uh, they did something similar in, in some of the rollouts for their uh, upcoming season, and I called it out on Twitter. And someone from that organization decided to try to get me in a little trouble. They uh they 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 called uh you know our our higher ups here at, at APM, and that it pissed me off a little bit. But 
you know, it's it's good to see that some orchestras, some folks in arts administration are willing to engage conversations equitably, and some are willing, are just want to respond by by getting somebody in trouble. So I'll, I'll be sure to keep that in mind next time I want to go to a concert or someone asks me um, about my local orchestra. Um, maybe a, a, a donor or, or an artist or someone else is interested in a little collaboration. I'm going to keep all of that in mind yeah. um, next time someone comes through town and, and wants to engage me and wants me to engage classical music with them, specifically live classical music. So how All m- shade, all disrespect. <laughs> how, how many impressions are you up to on that one? Uh, that one, and you know, that one wasn't as big. That 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 one, that one was more of a quieter mm. sort of thing. But uh, but that that got more of the reaction. So yeah, again, shout out to all of the arts administrators doing the good work, and shout out to those of you just trying to um, silence us. It's not going to work. There was nothing incorrect about the statement that you made, though. I I didn't think so. And here's let me let me say something that I noticed about it because you know. Uh, Devon Gray was talking about exactly. that very thing. Exactly. Okay, so it's not like these conversations aren't happening. I think that you were kind of a lightning rod in that you have the position that you have, you know, being on the air. And I noticed the exact same thing that you did, and I didn't feel courageous enough to make a social media stink about it. Right, right. And and even, you know, a, a, a few opuses back, and, and still we're talking about him, uh, Nibal Mesud and his his ground-shattering article, uh, <laughs> It's Time for Classical Music to Die. You know, he even got involved with me on social media in, in, in engaging that conversation. And what it instantly made me think of is the sort of artistic colonization he talks about in, in, uh, in, in that article that he wrote and how you know, some some things are allowed into those spaces and and some things aren't. And uh, that idea of colonization uh, plays a lot into what Quanice talks about this week. So uh, on, on this opus of Triloquy. So she uh, she grew up in New York, uh, currently lives in Washington, D.C., which has been the uh, victim of lots of quote unquote colonization. The, the word these days is gentrification. But it, it's it's very similar when you when you think about. Um, all of these neighborhoods that are starting to look a little bit different in Washington, D.C., um, people getting pushed out. Um, it's, it's just another iteration of, of what happened so long ago to the indigenous populations of, of, of this place that we now call America. And one of the really great things Quanice does is every time she's in front of a microphone, she acknowledges the native people's land that um, she's currently occupying. And we do that at the, uh, at the beginning of the interview. So, if, so just in a few minutes, you'll uh, listening, you'll get to hear... Um, uh, you'll you'll get to hear the indigenous people. You know, uh, a shout out to them who whose land we occupy. I think it's important to um, acknowledge that as much as we can. I think that this is a great time to bring focus to the fact that there are still uh, Dakota Access Pipeline and Keystone Access Pipeline protests that are still happening. Absolutely, uh, along the northern border of Nebraska and the southern border of South Dakota, that's still going on, and there has been legislation introduced in the Dakotas to make protesting those pipelines illegal. Isn't that isn't that just oh. now? Let me tell you though. I mean, originally that pipeline was supposed to go through go near Bismarck. Bismarck. And that didn't happen. No. You know why? The residents of Bismarck are mostly white. They don't want that in their backyard. Goodness gracious. And, and I, I, I can't help but to just tread so lightly because 
when you talk about the Dakotas, you know, we, we say these uh, indigenous words all the time, and yep. and 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 we're still ignoring uh, those populations. You come, you know, you grew up in a place that sounds indigenous to me, Omaha, yep. Nebraska. You know, well, the Omaha Indian and and Pacwa were there too, but they were really kind of uh, grouped in with Pawnee. The Pawnee Indians okay. were were all through the Platte River Valley. So just think of you know Omaha as being underneath Pawnee. You know, it was yeah, a sort of yeah. a part of. And you're using Pawnee. and you're using that I word, but I've I've seen. I'm I'm going to say it now. I've seen the phrase Pawnee Indian in. In texts and and literature that mm-hmm. I consider reputable, um, if 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 there's you know if I shouldn't say that, I, I hope someone from one of those tribes will reach out and correct me. I hate the phrase Native American because they were native to their own land. They weren't native to America. Yep. You know the, the the white man from Europe uh, brought that over. I wonder if uh, First Nations is one that I've heard a lot. First Nations, or, yeah, or indigenous, or just indigenous people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, what was was that part of your your? We're going to get to Kwanis, but I just want to ask you quickly: what, was that part of your uh, upbringing to learn about those indigenous populations? It or? was. It was, especially in grade school, and also in Omaha. The um, Joslin Art Museum has a a deep deep connection to hmm. indigenous art it's a, it takes up a large portion of the museum i don't know if it's still there um in memphis but you know one one of the ma- major field trips that that kids took i remember going to kindergarten first grade a few years in a row was it's either a replica of, of of a tribe or one that's just been preserved and and the place is called chuckalisa mm. and if uh and, and Kwanis is going to um, give you a website where you can look up uh, the indigenous people's uh, lands that you occupy. And um, during our interview, I just went into my phone and just searched my the zip code that I grew up in. And, and indeed, you know, the um, the Chukalisa tribe was a part of, of that land. So, mm. um, yeah, shout out to all of the um, education initiatives out there to, to really engage that. Unfortunately, we don't engage it so much in classical music. And, um, you know, I always made a point to, especially in my previous station on the Monday that folks call Columbus Day, I dedicated that to um, classical music with indigenous ties. And yeah. and one of the main composers of that sort of music, his name is uh, James DeMars. He features the, um, again, this phrase, but the Native American flute playing of a guy named uh, R. Carlos Nakai. Really uh, incredible music. And I thought we might just hear a small clip of it now. Let's do Music there of composer James DeMars featuring the flute playing of R. Carlos Nakai. That's a tune called Colors Fall. So be sure to go uh, look that up and listen to more of the music of James DeMars 
um, if you're interested in the connection and the relationship between classical music and the music of uh, indigenous people, the um, the first people, the first peoples of, of this land we call North America. So, um, yeah, w- w- with all that in mind, let's go ahead and uh, pop into the conversation uh, between myself and Kwanis Floyd, an arts administrator living over on the East Coast. How do you start into this conversation? Uh, exactly the, the the way I said. We, we first acknowledge the um, indigenous people's lands that uh, we're occupying, and we just go from there. Kwanis, it's so great to have you here. And uh, before we start, I'd like to acknowledge the indigenous people's lands who I currently occupy, specifically the Dakota Sioux, the Mduakanton, and the Ho-Chunk tribes. Uh, how, how about you? Where, where are you right now? So I'm located right now in the land of the Piscataway in Anacostan here in Washington, D.C. Why, uh, why is that something you do? I, I first noticed... Um, you acknowledging indigenous people's lands when I went and saw um, a live recording of one of your podcasts. Where did that idea come from? Uh, so um, Joshua and I, who's the co-host of my podcast, Art Accordingly, um, we went through a, a racial equity training um, for this organization called Art Equity. And so one of the things that we we're learning about was how we often do not talk about indigenous lands and how colonial the effects of colonialism to indigenous communities with, here within the United States. And so we wanted to pay homage to those who were here prior to America being America. And we wanted to respect those lands and honor those ancestors who were here, who have created communities and built uh, communities and built uh, love and passion and an opportunity here before uh, the second pillage of indigenous communities here in the United States. So we wanted to make sure that we were honoring them um, and that everyone knew where exactly we are um, every time we have a show. So no matter where we were, Joshua and I probably traveled to six different cities this year alone. And we just wanted everyone to understand that this is what was here before America was America. And these were the tribes that were here. This was the nation that was here prior to uh, the colonialism that's happened. And twice you used the phrase before America was America. And that's that's sort of why I prefer the phrase indigenous people. I don't really like the, the idea of Native Americans because, again, they're native to their own lands. They aren't native to the land that we call America or or that the, the colonizers called America or whoever, right? Right. Um. And, and uh, you know, listening to one of uh, my favorite podcasts, the, the Joe Budden podcast, they kind of <laughs> talked about the uh, the history of the um, Hudson River. And, and you're you're originally a New Yorker, right? Right. So yeah. so they uh, they talked about how, the, you know, this guy named Henry Hudson was going mm-hmm. along the river and he was uh, he was noticing how the indigenous people there were. Um, he, he thought they were pillaging or destroying. They were burning the lands because that's a part of their agriculture process. But uh, but he in turn uh, went back and destroyed them all. And now mm. we have now we have the Hudson River named after right. this guy. And, and that's just one of the many uh, stories of indigenous people that we just sort of ignore. And um, mm. and and the celebrated part of it are the people who who destroyed their communities. I mean, for, right. from, from your perspective, what, what do we need to do to sort of unearth some of these stories and to, and to fix this history? No, no one's renaming the Hudson River anytime soon, but surely there are other things we can do, mm-hmm. right? 
Right. Yeah. And I think uh, a part of acknowledging the land that we're on is doing uh, research on the history of the land and learning about those communities that were there prior to America um, and reaching out to those communities, asking what their needs are, letting them voices, letting, letting their voices uh, be amplified so that people know that these communities actually still exist. Um, they have different tribal uh, websites that you can look at. You can talk to um, the nations, uh, like the leaders of their specific nations and tribes. You can have conversations with them and see how you can better support their community. So I think it's really important for people to understand like the history of everything, but as well as how they can help amplify. Because I don't want to speak for any of any indigenous community and how we can better help them, but just reach out to them because they. To be honest, if every time you uh, go on native-land.ca, you can legally, literally, uh, click on the the link to their nation and their tribe, and you can connect with them. Um, so I think that's a. This is a really awesome website that's gotten really popular over the past probably two years or so um but so i would highly recommend anybody who's listening to go to native-land.ca and then type in their zip code and then they can see what indigenous nations have been um where they currently reside now this level of uh cultural competency you you currently practice is this something that existed in your own um upbringing in your own music education growing up in new york uh, so that's a very good question. <laughs> uh, growing up in New York was a little bit different. Um, we did learn about like the history of Manhattan and how the, the, the indigenous nations who were living in Manhattan were manipulated into giving um, the European colonizers this, the island of Manhattan for like five. I think it was an equivalent to like five dollars today. Wow. Um, Right, right. And this was something that was a part of the history in elementary school. They would teach us, but they never really got into the, the depthness of the manipulation, right? They just would say, hey, you know, this, they tried, it was almost like a, a, a negative thing. Like these quote unquote dumb people, indigenous people gave up America for only five, I mean, gave up Manhattan for only $5. And now look at Manhattan. It's the financial district of the world. It's right. the, the, the world. It's da, da, da. So they did it in a very, like, they centered whiteness in that whole conversation the entire time. Like whiteness was the rightness, right? Oh, wow. <laughs> um, <laughs> so um, as I grew up, my family um, had a lot of activity in our own, like, african-american history mm -hmm. um they were uh participants in the the staten island like black panther party so like a lot of those conversations that were circulated around black and brown people happened in my own household um and i, I remember <laughs> a lot of people were talking about you know how you have the talk with your kids about yeah. what it's like to be a black and brown person and yeah. your interactions with police and all that other stuff but um when i first started playing piano um, I got interviewed for like this newspaper. I don't even know if this newspaper still exists because of the internet, but um, they interviewed me and I was like six or seven years old and they were like, what do you want to be when you go up? And I said, I want to be the first African-American composer. And my hmm. uncle was like, wait, hold up. Didn't you know Beethoven was black? And I, said, <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, no, I didn't know that because of course my teacher wouldn't teach me that. Right. So, um, you know, that was, it was something that, that was incorporated like throughout um, many, I say many fabrics of 
my growing up, my my history, where there was conversations about like what it's like to be a black person in this position, whether Beethoven was black, you know, whether uh, going to what how music today is incorporated from like the sounds of polyrhythms from like Ghana and Western Africa mm-hmm. and all of that, how all of that comes together. Um, so that's definitely a lot of most of the stuff that I've learned from home and not from like private lessons and from you know uh, I went to a performing arts high school we didn't learn about that in high school um, however I went to Howard University for my undergrad and I got my degree in music education and of course you know it's required you have to learn African-American music you have of to course. learn African music like you have to learn all of that and so it kind of all the pieces started coming together when I was at Howard but before you got to Howard, like year, maybe even before uh, attending the Performing Arts High School, uh, where where did this sort of love and appreciation for music come from? Were your were your parents musicians? So uh, actually, nobody in my family was a musician. But, but, but you knew um, at the age of six or seven that you were interested in being a composer. Yeah. So I was very very young. So I lost my mother when I was four, and I think um, my family was trying to figure out things that I could push my energy into because they didn't quite know you know as a young kid that you don't quite know what fits so I had cousins who were in dance I tried dance that didn't work out for me <laughs> um, I was a karate I, that okay. worked for me but then also my aunt was my aunt my grand aunt um my grand aunt Carrie she loved piano so her and my grandmother put their money together you know they aren't they're older black women old retired fixed income yeah and they put their money together and put me into private piano lessons and then um i remember my aunt saying oh i i tried piano when i was your age and i just didn't like it so pretty much like every person in my family tried piano lessons and they never liked it and then i was the first one who i actually like stuck with oh wow um and so here i am six six years old and i'm like really enjoying like playing private lessons with my teacher um, and she still has her conservatory open in Staten Island. It was the Staten Island Conservatory of Music. And um, I'm just, like, playing piano, and they love it. Like, my granddaughter, my, my grandmother, they loved it. Like, she's the only one who knows how to play. Uh-huh. Let her play. Let her play at Thanksgiving. Let her play at Christmas. <laughs> Let her play. <laughs> they were very, like, encouraging, but I think it was because I, I took to it. Um, and I was, they were trying to – I was trying to figure out who I was as a individual because usually – children don't lose their parents that young right um and so it was it was a little bit more difficult for me trying to figure out who i was where i was my mom's not here um my dad's not really around so the fact that i was living with my grandmother and my aunt and my uncle it was like what exactly is her thing how can we make sure that she doesn't go down the wrong path because we know what happens when you know you don't have a mother and father in the home we know what happens when you know when teachers start laboring you because you're, you're acting out in school because you don't have the mother and father in the home. So what can we do to put, change this story and this narrative around for this little black girl? And then um, uh, and then putting you into a performing arts high school, you know, was a, was a part of that journey, I guess. Right. Yeah. And I actually, because I loved music so much, um, I, I pretty much played in middle school. I pretty much played in like all of the, the functions. I started playing violin in third grade. And so I was playing in like, orchestra jazz band concert band it was really interesting and um 
And even if I wasn't playing like a contraband instrument, they would put me on like bassoon because they knew I could read bass clef and treble clef. And I would read the bassoon on the keyboard and change the sound to bassoon on the keyboard and play that in concert band. Look at you like, making it, was... it work, making it make sense. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was like, I really want to go to a performing arts high school, but I don't want to go to some like a big school. I was not a fan of big schools because I, I got overwhelmed and it was too much. Sure. So, um, you know, all the students who want to go to performing arts schools always like apply for LaGuardia because that's like the biggest performing arts school in New York City. Um, but LaGuardia had escalators. Like, that's a huge school. Like, I wasn't, mm, that wasn't my cup of tea. Like, I'm coming from Staten Island, which is, a, I mean, it's a very small borough, but it's, it's really intimate. Like, Staten Island to me was more of like a very small community. Um, and so for me to go to something as big as LaGuardia, I didn't feel connected to it. So I ended up going to a smaller school called Town Unlimited High School, which was the number two performing arts school in New York City at the time. Mm-hmm. And we only had, I think I had 120 people in my graduating class. It was very small, but we knew everybody knew each other. Um, so it was, it was really a really unique. And then the school mostly was black and brown kids. Yeah, yeah. So it was a really unique experience compared to LaGuardia, where it's a lot of white and Asian kids. And you know, um, and, 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 even, and you know, when you mention uh, the LaGuardia School of the uh, Performing Arts, that is, you know, I, I'm I'm still thinking about our Indigenous peoples conversation. That that is representative of an Indigenous people. The name LaGuardia, right? And, and we don't even think about it, you know, right. half the time. Wow, it's yeah, it, it's something for me to to think about. It's like once once your eyes are open to that sort of thing, you you see so much more, um, right? But 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 anyway, so it, so LaGuardia was a little too big for you. You uh, ended up at, at your uh, performing arts high school. And um, and as you mentioned, you went on to Howard University. Now, um, in the very first episode, the first opus uh, of this podcast, I talked to someone who went to an HBCU and I talked to him about the fact that I just was not. Um, how can I say I wasn't pathed or pushed toward an HBCU. I just didn't have the concept of, of going to one. Where did that come for you? Where did that come from for you? Oh, I think it came from many different factors. Like throughout my life, like I had such a strong uh, structure in like African Americanism. Yeah, <laughs> I guess. blackness. Yeah, blackness <laughs> in my own household. Plus, I went to like a, a, a high school that was full of black and brown kids. Um, and then I just wanted to be around more black people. I don't know. I just, it was a calling to me. It just, I, I knew pretty much by the time I actually got to high school that I wanted to go to an HBCU. I didn't know which one I wanted to go to, but I knew I wanted to go to an HBCU. And so I went to, I, funny thing, I got a high school intern internship at Washington Mutual Bank, which doesn't even exist anymore because hmm. they like folded in the recession. Yeah. But, um, there was uh, co-workers there, and we were working in the Upper East Side of Manhattan, which is right around the corner from my, my high school, and we were working, and one of my co-workers went to Dillard, and we were having different conversations, and he was like, well, why don't you try Dillard? I was like, ah, I'm from, born and raised in New York. I don't want to go that far south. I'm not, I don't know about all that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he's like, well, Howard is a really, I mean, Howard is the number one HBCU, and it's, you know, it's a really good school, and it's not that far from New York. You can still, you know, go to your family. You can still go here. I was like, well, I'll check into it. So I applied, my senior year, I was an overachiever. I applied to like 25 schools. Oh, wow. And got into like 24 and um, were any of those not hbcus yes so there were sunnies which are state university of new york yep 
um, CUNY's, which are City University of New York. I knew I wasn't going to go there, but I just applied because that would make my family happy because they wanted me to stay in the city. Sure. Or they said wanted me to stay in New York. Um, and then I applied to like, uh, what's some other schools I did? Oh, like University of the Arts in Philadelphia. Um, I can't even remember all those schools. It was a lot. <laughs> but I remember when they had, they posted like all of the people who graduate, who were graduating in that year mm-hmm. and um, they would put the different schools they got accepted to and mine had like the longest. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you were proud of that. <laughs> uh, yeah. So uh, I was like, if Howard was like the last school that I applied to. And so I said that if I didn't get into Howard, I would go to Delaware State, which is another HBCU, which is like a really random HBCU. But I know my my Delaware was fairly close to New York, and my sure. aunt loved Delaware because she used to like go into the to the uh, casinos down there, like okay. shopping because they ain't got no taxes. <laughs> okay. But I was like, okay, well, I'm waiting for Howard, so let's see. And then all of a sudden, uh, I think it was like March or April. Um, I didn't hear anything and I had to go in for an audition and all that other stuff, but I didn't hear anything. So I ended up calling. They were like, yeah, you got accepted, but I didn't get no letter. I was like, oh, okay. Um, can y'all send something, please? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so they ended up sending me the letter and then my family was like, yes, you're going to Howard. And I was like, oh my goodness. And it, it just felt like at that point when I got that acceptance, I felt like I had to go. There was no other place I could go but to Howard University. Now, what do you say to the um, sort of misconception that you have to go to one of these conservatories or these fancy music schools to to have a good start in music? There, it seems like there's this sort of misconception out there that HBCUs don't offer the same music education or the same music opportunities as the uh, predominantly white institutions. Right. Um I'm going to tell people, don't even listen to that, because my experience at Howard, I would say it was it was comparable to conservatory. Like, not only were we learning the Western classical canon, we were learning, like, the African and, like, how that connects, like, the, the uh, ethnomusicology of all of everything. And to me, that was, like, the, the best part of all of it. I love learning how music of different nations connected. I love I loved learning how to play music from different nations yeah. um, and, and understanding the theories and the, the applications and the concepts behind all of that. And I just, I mean, I was in the practice room, like, six, literally, like, six hours a day. I would have class from uh, 8 a.m. until about 4 p.m., be in the practice rooms until about 10 p.m., and then try to have a social life sometimes, you know, maybe go to the club once, once okay. in a while. But, yeah. <laughs> uh, but it was really intense. It was, like, probably it was probably one of the most intense experiences that I've had as a musician. Um, and then it was really great connecting with other brilliant minds who were musicians around the nation at this one, you know, HBCU at Howard. And most of the people I went to school now, they're like always a part of like the DC um, music circuit. Like they're always playing for different, like the DC Jazz Fest and they're playing at Carnegie Hall and they're playing, like they're playing behind like Chance the Rapper. Like people are really like out there. And I don't, so the fact that people only limit like conservatory uh, training to non not non HBCUs is like it's ridiculous because we could do that and more <laughs> because we're learning outside of the Western canon at HBCUs. We're learning like 
the, we're learning our music plus your music. Right, right. <laughs> and I have to say, I'm just so jealous of, of all of that because, you know, learning about, you know, our music and, and that setting just has to be so invaluable. And, it and, is. And, 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 and wow, it, it just... It, it just makes me shake my head, you know, if I could go back. I, I definitely appreciate my musical upbringing, but th there's definitely something to be said about a program that, you know, focuses on, you know, those sorts of uh, cultural competencies and making sure that the students know their music, the music of their ancestors. Did uh, Now, you said you went and uh, majored at Howard University as a music ed major. Is that what you started out to do? Were, were you always planning on being a music teacher? Yeah, so I, when I was nine, nine years old, uh, Mr. Holland's opus might have like either just came out or maybe it came out a couple of years before. And so I saw the movie and I was just like in love with the movie. I was in love with Mr. Holland uh, because of the work that he was doing with the students, both inside and outside of the classroom. He was like helping build them up to be like the, the global creative citizens and the best citizens that they could be for themselves and for the world around them. Um, I remember when, that one scene where he was teaching um, uh, the student who went into the army and yeah, then yeah. Um, he ended up going to the army and passing away. And it was just so like, he, I felt that like to me, that was like, oh my goodness, he had this amazing connection to this student who was like, I didn't want to play drums. I hate this. And then he ended up loving playing drums. And then he went into the army and then he was like playing drums in the army. And then like, it was just fascinating to me. Yeah, so you I knew felt I always that. wanted to teach. <laughs> yeah, I did. So I knew I wanted to teach. Um, I always wanted to teach and I really wanted to teach students who looked like me. Yeah. Um, because in, in the public school setting, you don't get the opportunity to teach music from different worlds. Um, if you don't get opportunities for students to learn about music from different worlds and incorporate that. And so uh, being a public school teacher, that's something that I, that I was, that's like, that was like my mission. Like, sure, we can learn Danny Boy and how to play Danny Boy and Hot Crust Buns on the recorder, but like, can we learn about <laughs> like, like what it is like to listen to music from Cuba or music from Ghana or music from Nigeria, like how does that, like how can we incorporate what the students listen to at home with their families into the public school classroom? So how did you do that in your classroom? Uh, I just did it. Like I, you know, I, especially with my background at Howard, like we had a lot of training in uh, non-Western music. Yeah. Um, and so like just incorporating all of that. So it, for me, it was more about like sitting at home I remember sitting at home one summer and I was just looking at like standards and the units that they already had and incorporating like different music into each of these units. And um, I got in trouble for that, honestly. Really? I could be very public with that. I got in trouble for that because it wasn't the norm. It wasn't when a assistant principal or a principal walk into your classroom, it's supposed to look like the other music classrooms, but mine didn't. Mine was more interactive. Students loved it. It had dancing, it had singing, it had composing and creating. Like students were writing their own music because now they understood these rhythms that were coming out of like the music that they listened to. Right, right. Um, at one point I did a whole unit on protest music. Oh, I Lord, bet that really they made a man. They, ooh, Lord. They, <laughs> that school system blew a gasket because you teaching kids about protests. I'm like, well, we teach students about the Revolutionary War, right? 
And that's, you know, that was a form of protest. So why can't we teach them the music behind all of this stuff? Why can't we teach them the music behind the civil rights movement? Why can't we teach them the music behind all of this? So it was really interesting, the, the reactions that I was getting. It was almost like you're teaching them outside of the box and we don't want them to know that. It's really fascinating. I was like, I got written up so many times. Well, I mean, you got an actual official trouble. I did, I did. And then I was I was literally like showing them the curriculum and like saying, hey, you could find this, this, and this in this song. So why am I getting in trouble? Well, it's not it's not in the uh in our recommended sources of music, our recommended references of music. And see, so and- you're telling so you're telling me just because the song is not in your list of songs that I can't teach the students the song, but the concepts are in the song. So it was, it was just a really interesting battle that I was having with um, multiple administrators at that time and, and as that, to what it looked like. And that really just trips me out because when I think about D.C., and, and maybe it's not so much the case anymore, but we used to call it Chocolate City. And right. and you describing you know yourself as someone who wanted to teach students that look like you, and you know, you're right. teaching these black and brown kids, and you aren't even allowed to... In, you know, engage them in a culturally competent way. I mean, right. what, what people, people, you know, I get on people's nerves by always boiling everything down to race. But again, to me, this sounds like um, white supremacy in the classroom, in classroom or, in, yep. you know, in, in the curriculums. It's like it, it's mm-hmm. in, it's ingrained all the way down to what we teach our kids. It is. Oh, it definitely is. I even had I remember I told in multiple schools around the D.C. area, but I remember in D.C. specifically, I was teaching Go-Go. Ooh, Lord. Yeah, and you know, course. there's like a whole yeah. thing happening with Go-Go here. I had a principal come into my classroom and said, stop teaching that noise. Oh, she literally said goodness. that in front of me, in front of the kids. I said, what are you talking about? This is noise. Now, for, for No, the- this is Go-Go. This is what the students listen to every day. This is not noise. And this is, I can incorporate this and this, this, and this, and this. So the fact that you're calling it noise is almost disrespectful to not only me, but to the students and to their families. And, and this is a part of the culture here. Right. That's what I was going to say. And to the local culture. For, for the people who right. don't know, uh, t- talk a little bit about what go-go is. It's a specific style Ooh. of hip hop, right? Yes. Well, it's a specific style of funk. So um, Chuck Brown used to play like backup and background. This might not be the, uh, I'm not the historian behind go-go, but this right. is what I know right. of go-go. Um, so anybody, please feel free to correct me. But Chuck Brown used to play like backup to like uh, James Brown, and like during James Brown's set, he would like walk off, and there would be an opportunity for like intermission music. And what they would do is they would play around with the music, and it ended up being like this really dope like funk jam with a focus on like the the percussion section. Yeah. Um, and it would have this pocket, which would be like, boom, boom, doop, doop, boop, 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 boop. so it, it was really interesting. I'm probably not even <laughs> singing it right, but, but it was like this really like interesting funk beat. And then that eventually became like go-go music. Right. So it was at one point, it was just intermission music for funk music. Um, but now it's like, they, they've come up with songs like, so if you listen to like doing the butt, that's go-go music, yeah. uh, more modern music. Uh, I would say like uh, what's that song by Kelly Rowland? Like this, which yeah. just came out a couple of years ago. That was go go. A Marie's uh, just one thing. That was go go. So you hear like a little focus on like the Congos, um, and now like they've have they have different back uh, bands, which is like a backyard band, 
um, Rare Essence, EU. So it's like a whole history here. This is probably about 30, 40 years old within this area alone. Um, and so there's a lot of history that goes with that. Like, it's very fluid in D.C. And so what's going on here in D.C. now is that because of all the gentrification that's going on, D.C. was known for street musicians. So there would be like little kids or there'd be kids or like up and coming artists, musicians on the corners playing go-go music, just like having fun, you know, give a dollar here, give a dollar there while yeah. they're making the music. So now that gentrification is happening, people are moving into these neighborhoods where they were predominantly commercial areas where most of the street musicians were because in the commercial areas, that's where you can find most of the foot traffic where people right. are walking. And now right. they're complaining and saying that the music is bothering them, that they can't go to sleep, blah, 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 blah. But one, once again, who gets condos in commercial areas? That's a whole different story. <laughs> um, but they're like calling police on musicians and police were like citing, giving sites and citations. And then at one point, there's a famous uh, corner on Florida and uh, Georgia Avenue where there was a T-Mobile store. And that T-Mobile store used to have like a huge... Uh, speaker on the corner and they used to just blast go-go music and then people would walk by and dance and all the other stuff. So they built this new condo building about half a block up and someone from that condo building called the T-Mobile store's national headquarters and then T-Mobile called that store and told them to stop playing the music. So one day people are walking by and they're like, where's the music? And they're like, well, national headquarters said we've been getting complaints about the music that we've been putting on this corner for like 20 plus years. And so it created like this whole uprising of like you all are trying to move into the city and telling us to be quiet, basically. So they, they came up with this whole hashtag called Don't Mute DC, and basically saying don't mute the music, don't mute the culture that's already been here, pay respect to the culture, honor the culture. And they had this whole um, concert called Mochella, which took up like the entire U Street area. And um, it's basically a pushback to all of the gentrification and to all the people who have been um, disrespectful to the culture that's been here man it's it's like you have to fight for the validation of this music and this culture in the classroom in the streets right. and everywhere where it existed it's not like go-go music and everything you were trying to teach in your classroom came from the outside it existed there and you're trying to cultivate right. it and there's a, and there's a, a fight to destroy it. it you know it again it, it reminds me of our the first part of our conversation talking about indigenous people and and their right. culture and maintaining who goodness gracious there's something else um yeah. <laughs> so yeah. so uh so all of all of these efforts uh i guess led you to being an arts administrator how, how was that transition from going from the classroom <laughs> to going to like the offices and, and before you even talk about that um I'm sure there are a lot of people that have never heard of an arts administrator or or the field of arts administration in in a nutshell what is that yeah, so an arts administrator is basically the people who are behind the scenes of an arts organization. So if you're at a symphony orchestra concert, an arts administrator can be anybody who runs the box office to someone who, do, who does uh, fundraising and development for that organization to someone who does all of the education programs, so like an education director, anybody who does the behind the scenes of an arts organization. Um, yeah, and so those are the people who actually keep the organizations running. So I think arts administration didn't become popular until about 30 to 40 years ago. Um, and I think they started coming out with uh, higher education programs focused on arts administration probably in the 1960s, 1970s. I think American University might have been one of the first arts administrators okay. or arts management programs. 
Um, but yeah, those are the people who keep arts organizations running. So how did you go from the classroom to arts administration? Uh, that's funny. So that's a really interesting question because I didn't really technically go from the classroom until arts administration until about six months ago. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> but um, I did get my degree in 2016, um, my second master's degree in arts management from American University. Um, and during that time, I had a fellowship at the National PTA who has an arts education program. Um, and so I was helping run that program. So behind the scenes, again, helping run a national uh, association's arts education program. Um, and then from there, once I graduated from the program, I was like, oh, you know, I had all these connections. American University has a plethora of connections and alumni globally. Um, but I kept ending up in spaces where there were a lack of people of color and there were a lot of conversations happening about community engagement and how to engage communities of color. And then I would often be the only one in that, like in those conversations. Of color. And so, right. And so they would all like point to me, like, you're, you're here. What do, how, do you, how do we do this? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, well, I can't speak for all people of color. Like I can't do that. That's not something I could do. And so uh, one day I was talking to Ariel Shelton, who's now um, a board member, but she also went to Howard University. Yeah, shout out to Ariel, um, yeah. <laughs> and she and I were like, wouldn't it be really dope to get a bunch of uh, arts administrators of color in the same space? So I ended up creating the organization Arts Administrators of Color Network, um, did all the paperwork and all the background, 501c3, charitable donation and um, we've been we've been kind of trying to push all of this diversity, equity, and inclusion work forward uh, for the past three years. So we've had over 30 events, and we have about 1,200 members in the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area. We also have people who are outside of the area who um, consider we consider as members. Uh, we're working on building up capacity now to create chapters in different cities. Um, and then we've also seen that there's people who are creating um, similar organizations, which we love when people create similar organizations and uh, in other cities as well. So our focus is to basically provide like our own professional development and leadership opportunities for people of color in the arts. So regardless of it being an art artist or an arts administrator. I want to connect your time as um, a classroom teacher uh, to mm. your role as an arts administrator. How uh, do you think, uh, how do you think arts administrators can sort of influence curriculums and, and, and make sure what's taught in the classroom is more culturally competent and, uh, you know, uh, you know, ways to prevent, uh, you know, school administrators from coming in the classroom and telling teachers to turn off that noise or, you know, just right. just how can arts administrators, um, you know, get that get a, how can I say validate the culture and the arts of of people of color that that already exist in these communities. Right. And I, I think the, the fundamental part of being an arts administrator is that you have to be well connected into the community. Like you have to do things outside mm. of your job description. Um, you literally have to like if you need to serve or if you're an education person as an um, administrator, if you're working in an organization as an arts education person, you should be serving on uh, education committee of your local school district that you serve. Like you need to have, you need to be a part of those conversations to ensure that there's advocacy in the arts that's happening because um, like the supervisors and coordinators of arts education within the public school systems can only do but so much and it's only usually one person um, and they they are overseeing you know K twelve all disciplines which is difficult for them to advocate so having those additional voices at the table uh, is definitely helpful for them so. 
uh, my transition from being a teacher, um, I ended up actually becoming the director of learning and leadership development at the National Guild for Community Arts Education. And what they do is they're not so much in the classroom. They're more they're more so in like the community arts field, which is like after school or mm-hmm. like pull in arts, uh, arts residency programs or right. teaching artists and all that other stuff. But they were very they're very vocal in talking about like what a competent arts leader or arts administrator looks like in the field and what their background should be. And they always focus on like how culture and race should be at the epicenter of being a great leader in this field. Um, and so I'm actually transitioning from that position now to be to lead an arts education advocacy organization in Maryland. Um, and so I already like am signed up for like the Maryland Education Council and um, I'm working closely with the Maryland State Department of Education's coordinator of fine arts who oversees all the curriculum. Um, I'm working with the Maryland State Arts Council where you know that they have a lot of like arts education funding. So it's like you have to put your tentacles into all of that work, but you also have to be very dedicated into that work. If you're not dedicated into that, that arts, if you're not dedicated into making change in arts ed, then you shouldn't be in arts ed, right? Right, like, right, right. You, arts ed can't be the same old, same old. We can't keep teaching the same old, same old anymore. Like our schools are becoming too racially and culturally diverse. Our schools are, our students are dealing with a lot more than what they've been dealing with. Like I remember when I was teaching in Montgomery County, a lot of my students were first generation Americans and they were, when the whole ICE thing, which is still going on, yeah. was ha- beginning to start, they were afraid to come to school because they didn't know whether or not they would go home and their family would be gone. Oh my so goodness. these are things that we need to address in the arts education world. Like we have to start st- speaking up for our students and ensuring that they're getting um, a high quality arts education, but then also acknowledging that arts education is a civil right. So this is something that I'm learning. There's a guy named Amir Whitaker in California who's actually suing, um, I believe he's suing uh, the federal government and the state of California, if I'm not correct, just let me know. Um, <laughs> because uh, arts education is inequitable within the state of California. And we all know that if students don't have access to arts education, they know later down the line there are other things that pop up within like um, academic achievement, opportunity gaps. Um, we know that uh, the, uh, the prison, uh, the school to prison pipeline gets activated in certain points. And so we understand that arts education is a vital piece for that. And so one of the things that he speaks about is how arts education is a civil right for all students, no matter where you are. And if the school is not providing high quality arts education, then you are disrupting that student's civil right. And you should be uh, there should be consequences for that. Right. And, um, and, and as, and as some of my, um, you know, predecessors who came up as black Panthers and all that would say, you know, that's violent, that's violence it is. To, it to, is violent. to, to keep that from those, from, from those students. And when I think about arts, um, education, that's, uh, culturally competent, I think about students going to school and seeing themselves and their culture reflected and, and that validating the rest of their lives. Not that they need right. validation from the schools, but it, 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 it's definitely significant for, for them to be able to go to school and, and see themselves in their education. Not, you know, not just, you know, when we talk about, uh, American history and when we talk about language arts, but you know, the, the, the fine arts and, and making sure right. that that is addressed. 
Right. So, so how can people, um, you know, do you need an arts administration degree or background to kind of engage some of these community initiatives? How, how, can, how can people find ways to uh, be a part of this work in their own communities? Yeah, you don't need arts admin. I mean, degree. I don't. They're probably gonna hate me for saying that, but you, <laughs> <laughs> you don't really. And, need and it. I'm sure it helps. It helps, and it, it puts you in the right like connections, and you know, it puts you. It, it connects you to the right people, but you can also do that yourself. It might take a little bit more focus and a little bit more discipline, but you can definitely do the work yourself to get more involved. Um, yeah, because I mean, I love the program that I went through, but then also, you know, debt, right? <laughs> of course, yeah, and that's a whole other so thing. So I, if I could encourage people to not have debt, I will. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, how can people uh, find out more about you and the and the work that you do specifically on the on the East Coast and 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 elsewhere uh, as far as cultural competency and arts administration? Sure. Um, they can look up our website, Arts Administrators of Color Network, is www.aacnetwork.org. Um, and then you can look at all of our uh, programs that we have coming up. So we have an annual convening for anybody who's listening. The annual convening is formed by people of color in the arts. So you can be an arts leader, you can be an artist, you can be an arts administrator, anybody who works in the arts and creative field. Um, and it's going to be here in Washington, D.C., November 9th and 10th. So this is our biggest uh, event um, as of yet because this is the first time we're having a two-day convening instead of a one-day convening. So we're really excited about that. We're expecting over 300 people, um, mostly based in DC, but we do have a lot of people who come from Philly, from Cleveland, from Atlanta. Um, it's very, it's a really dope space. Like I, I consider it a family reunion because we get to see each other yeah, <laughs> and talk yeah, to each other yeah. and meet each other and party together. So if you're really interested, feel free to um, reach out on our website or you can email me um, at qgfloyd at gmail.com. And then uh, one more time, could you give the, uh, the information, the, uh, you know, sort of the details about, again, your Art Accordingly podcast? Oh, yeah. So um, one of the programs that we have for Arts Administrators of Color Network is Art Accordingly. And so what Joshua, who is our co my co-host, and I do is we examine and analyze and basically, like, read um, any uh, like organizations who are going through diversity, equity, inclusion um, issues, and we're just reading the field in general, but we're also providing calls to action so that we can all move forward together in this journey to liberation in the arts world. Absolutely. Well, Kwanis, thank you so much for talking with me. Um, thank you for the work you do. No, oh, thank you so much. Thank you for the work you do. I really appreciate it. You're amazing. Love you. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> Quanice Floyd in conversation with Garrett McQueen here on Triloquy. You ready to talk about some go-go? <laughs> Doing the butt. Surely you played that at a party or two. I did, yeah. And, you know, Bustin' Loose, Nelly used a, that was a, that was a, a, yeah. a lift right there, almost yeah. exactly. So Yeah, yeah very, a very important, you know, subgenre of funk, as Quanice said, and one that deserves a place in the classroom. You know, one of my big uh, takeaways from uh, what Quanice was talking about was when she said arts administrators have to be well connected to their communities. And, oh my goodness, like when I think about a lot of these orchestras, are those arts administrators in those organizations well connected with those communities? I don't think so. 
and and maybe I'm misstepping by saying that, but it doesn't feel like that to me. That's what I was going to say. It doesn't feel when, like when, it. When you consider programming and when you when you consider that sort of thing, it just does not feel like it. And and that's the next big step that these organizations need to take. And I'm you know I, I have to bring up the Minnesota Orchestra again. They have to be well connected with that community to engage the community, and they take for granted that there's such this large organization that will always have the financial support that will always have uh, the audience there. But what is it worth if the if the community that you reside in doesn't know anything about you or doesn't feel engaged or included in what you're doing? Well, then you feel shut out, right? Right, I exactly. Mean, uh, exclusion is there even though um, you have a big stake in the history of the of the environment of the uh, of the region. Yeah, yeah. But, um, you know, again, I, I just really appreciate Kwanis for what she does as far um, as the conversations concerning indigenous people, um, because so many of these, you know, I thought she made a really great point in connecting um, protest music with, um, uh, what, what was she talking about? Protest music with... Uh, you know the Revolutionary War, and then I thought about right. uh, I thought about the the Boston Tea Party, uh, which what they don't teach you in school is that those folks were uh, dressed up as indigenous people. You know, painted themselves red and right. had feathers sticking out of their heads and stuff. You know, the 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 relationship between um, I'm just gonna say white people and indigenous people has been troubled over over so long and. Um, and I, I hope that in the future, some of those uh, stories and some of those lessons taught to the youngsters will be a little more truthful and a little more equitable. Uh, did you ever see the, uh, the the movie Pocahontas? No, I didn't. Yeah, there, there was, uh, I, I think I was in second or third grade when that movie uh, came out. And there's a line from the movie that I never uh, forgot about. I hope I can. These white men are dangerous. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> I'm sitting right here. <laughs> but that was Disney sort of shouting out and and uh, laying out the perspective of some of those people. They were here minding their own business, and John Smith and crew come to uh, to take all what they thought it was a lot of gold here and all that anyway. Right. Um, let me tell you, if you read if you read like the first five pages of a people's history of the United States, you will be ready to upend tables. And it, I mean, it will make you angry yeah um yeah start there if you're looking for a spot yeah so uh so again big shout outs to um Quanice for uh sitting down with me she's doing some incredible work and i hope to sit down with her again soon i usually see her about two or three times a year so looking forward to our next conversation speaking of next conversations next time on triloquy next time on triloquy I'm I'm so excited, Scott. I can't I can barely contain myself. The next opus of Triloquy is a Beyonce episode. It's not strictly a Beyonce <laughs> episode, but I talked to uh, my great homegirl Jessica Majunkins, who um, works in New York City as a music contractor. So we talk a lot about um, contracting and what that work is. She's a violinist, um, and how her career led her to performing with Beyonce. Um, at homecoming at Coachella, and um, which was followed by going on tour with uh, Beyonce on the on the run tour uh, too. We talk about Beyonce. We talk about the implications of a celebrity like Beyonce validating classical musicians by putting string players on the stage on a stage like that. Nice and 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 everything around it. I'm so excited. I cannot wait to spend the next opus of Triloquy exploring my friend Jessica Majunkins her connections to Beyonce and uh, and everything in between.
And don't forget, our website is live. It's T-R-I-L-L-O-Q-U-Y dot org. And you can even make contact. Just email us at triloquy at americanpublicmedia.org. Thank you.